Thank you. Wow. Okay, well, lots of things haven't changed here. Um, one of the things is that uh, I still can't follow those high notes with Betty, uh, as I was trying to do in that last <laughs> song. <laughs> and then I remembered, oh, yeah, there's a low part that I could have done. <laughs> and the other thing is, well, could you take these slides down for a minute? That's going to be a little bit later. Um, so and the, another thing that hasn't changed yet, apparently they're still giving the preachers just 20 minutes to preach here. So we gotta get, we got to get moving. we got a lot of ground to cover here. And so uh, we'll add five or ten just for old time's sake, right? Okay. And, uh, but uh, I'm also glad the other thing is from the, from the song. I, 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 can, I can still tell that you are uh, people of the book, the people of the book. And so, uh, and you'll probably. <laughs> wow, this is just—I mean, it just—it's just kind of blowing my mind to be here. Um, uh, the church I pastored just before this, uh, over there in Brentwood, um, I remember the old minister coming back to preach, at, and uh, for our anniversary, and, and just before he went up to preach, I—you know—it just occurred to me. I wonder. I think I'll just ask him what he's going to preach on, because, and he goes, "Well, when I was here 30 years ago." I preached premillennialism, and now I believe in amillennialism, and I'm going to correct that. <laughs> so I have no theological things to correct with you, and and I don't think I have. I don't think I have. Pray, I, I pray that I don't think I have any past uh, luggage to unload or any anything like that. So it was a good experience here for for the three years I pastored. But what some of you may not know is what was not a great experience uh, during the time I was here. I was I was at a potluck. No, the potlucks were good. <laughs> it was one Thursday afternoon uh, in uh, 1989, February, uh, when somebody came to the potluck saying there had been a shooting at Cleveland Elementary School in Stockton. And uh, I had just started my career in the Air Force Reserve, so I, I did some part-time work with the Air Force Reserves while I was here. And so I had just been trained in mass casualties and so um, this is kind of the, the part of the story that you guys maybe not have heard but uh, maybe Brother Sinclair remembers some of this uh, but but I, I went, uh, I, I responded to that scene just simply because I had been trained in mass casualties and showed up about an hour after the, uh, the first shot had been fired and for uh, I was sent, uh, I reported to the command post there and just as I had been trained for the Air Force that there would be a command post and, and I said, what can I do? I'm a chaplain trained in mass casualties and they sent me to a room in which uh, they said, we're going to be sending parents into that room and you are going to be um, notifying those parents that those children have died and so as they came in one by one, many of them Cambodians, not, in, not able to speak English, the only thing I could do was put my finger uh, over their child's name in a list that I had been given, and I pointed to their name, and I would just shake my head and say, "Sorry, so sorry, so sorry," until they finally understood that their children had died. Well. Out of that experience, uh, I, I was asked to come back. That was Thursday, and then I came back Friday. And they were at the end of the day, I was asked to come back to uh, the scene on Monday uh, to, to provide counseling along with several other people that had been in that tragedy. And, uh, and I couldn't. I wouldn't. I didn't. 
something broke in me as I saw what had happened to those children. And I was AWOL that Monday, and I wouldn't return, and I've never been back to that scene. And so from February probably through to the next summer, Roger, you had one depressed pastor to the point that even ending my life was a thought I occasionally had. And it was out of that experience that um, I learned of an opportunity at UC Davis to become a chaplain and, and to sort of make some of that right, uh, my experience. And I spent the next year in uh, both, about half of my 40 hours a week were spent in, um, in the hospital rooms with patients, and the other half was spent. And the best way to describe it to people that haven't been there is kind of a group therapy, a kind of a chaplain sitting around talking about the patients they had visited and kind of talking about what that meant. And I spent a lot of time processing what had happened to Stockton. The Air Force gave me a medal for it, and that medal has never come out of the drawer. So uh, those have those were my experiences after I left here, and very difficult ones. And but I say those things to say that out of that, out of that whole thing, uh, came a new ministry for me. Um, when I left here, I remember, I don't know who it was, but one of them, I think an old pastor said, well, one of these days when you return to the ministry, you know, he said. And, well, what he didn't know and couldn't know was that the next 25 years would be spent in chaplaincy in, in some really heartfelt ministry that I want to just talk to you a little bit about today. And... Um, so as, as, as Roger mentioned, I, I write a syndicated newspaper column. I, I, um, not to toot my own horn, but some of these, because I write in different cities, anywhere from Florida to Ohio to Arkansas, Tennessee, um, Phoenix, all, all these places. So I get invited to speak and to talk about some of the experiences of chaplaincy. So I wanted to use this opportunity to tell you a little bit about um, it, it, about some of those experiences as a chaplain and, and what that means when you support the Home Mission Board. Or I think it's not called the Home Mission Board anymore. <laughs> there it goes. I still can't lose that term. So, But when you support uh, the annual... Um, mission offerings that what you support I'm still uh, endorsed as a Southern Baptist uh, chaplain so and I've spent those years as a both as an Air Force chaplain and as a hospital chaplain so I want to just talk a little bit about that but first of all I mean in in case I'm going to encase those experiences Really, in this uh, in this sermon about forgiveness. Now, we read from Mark chapter two earlier, but uh, my pastor says uh, every sermon needs to. There, you need every Sunday when he preaches, uh, he talks about here's your message in a tweet. Now, I would just only guess here that we don't have a lot of tweeters, since I barely know what it is anyway myself. But he says it, it's a message encased in a few words, and the message that that I would enclose this in this few words would be would be this. 
No relationship can survive the absence of forgiveness. No relationship can survive the absence of forgiveness. In seminary class, they taught us that was the thesis, so maybe that's a better word than the tweet, but anyway. Uh, no, no relationship can survive the absence of forgiveness. 1 Corinthians 13, verse 5, says, in the last half of the verse, says, Love keeps no record of wrongs. Love keeps no record of wrongs. The scripture we know, we know the scripture that teaches us, lots of scriptures teach us to forgive one another. Um, But we still seem to ask ourselves, why should I forgive? Why should I forgive? When I talk to people about forgiveness, the thing that occurs to me most is, Forgiveness is the fuel that powers the Christian life. That's how you get your energy from God, is that He forgave you. And so, when I, when I suggest that we forgive, I say, it's the power that God used to redeem us. It's real power. And we don't think of forgiveness as power. That sounds like an oxymoron. What about power? Where does that come from? You remember that movie Schindler's List? Remember in that, in that, in that part of the movie you may have seen, where, and if you haven't seen it, I think you can imagine, so don't let me lose you here, because I think you can imagine this commandant of, of, the, of, the, uh, of the concentration camp. All he did was he would sit up in his uh, tower, his office, and he would, he would take his rifle and he would occasionally shoot Jews just because they just because they did something wrong and Schindler in this moment of reverse psychology came up to him and said you know instead of shooting the, these people that's power you can take their life that's real that's power but you know what's even more power to say to them i pardon you i pardon you and so for weeks after that he would bump into Jews or something and just as they thought just as they thought that he was going to shoot him he'd say pardon you you're pardoned you're pardoned Because Schindler talked him into the fact that that's really where power is. He even said, you can be such a big man, he told the commandant, by forgiving these foolish Jews their mistakes. Instead of shooting them, say, I forgive them. What Aryan nobility you would show. And so for these next several days, he would go along and he would just forgive people. And that's what Jesus meant in this passage from Mark 2. The religious leaders found Jesus' statement every bit as crazy as, as the commandant found Schindler's statement. They asked the crowd, or, 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 or they asked the crowd, who does he, who does Jesus think he is? That's blasphemous talk. God is, only God is able to forgive sins. And this is Jesus' response. He says, Which is simpler to say, I forgive your sins, or to say, get up and start walking? In other words, where's the real power here? The ability to get this man up off his, off his mat and walk, or is the real power in forgiveness? Now the question is asked, as you probably know, as you've studied it, it's asked in a, in, in a syntax that suggests already the answer. They should already know the answer when Jesus asked the question this way. Which is easier to say, get up and walk?
I like the way the message puts it. And the message is a um, the message is a paraphrased version of the Bible. But I like the way it puts it. Because Jesus, when, when the question is asked, which is, which is easier? Jesus answers his own question. He says, just so it's clear. <laughs> Don't you love that when people start a sentence, just so we're clear here, you know it's coming. I mean, you can hear the gears of that truck grinding down and it's about to run you over. <laughs> and Jesus says, just so it's clear that I'm authorized to do either He spoke directly to the paralegic and he said, get up, take your bedroll, go home. And without a moment's hesitation, the message says he did. And I like the way way that the message closes the passage. It says, the people rub their eyes incredulously. I can can just get that, can't you? They're like, what? (laughs) They rub their eyes incredulously, awestruck. They said, we've never seen anything like that. And that's the power to forgive. Why should we forgive? Two, because Christ forgave us. Bear with each other, Colossians 3.13 says, Bear with each other and forgive whatever grievances you may have against one another. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. Does this microphone work? Yes. Right? I push the button probably for two seconds. It's on. It's hot. Okay. I like to walk around, and there's one other thing I do. Roger, I don't know if you remember this. I take off my shoes. It makes me more comfortable. <laughs> Besides, that's what you do when you come home, right? So, all right. So, so. Uh, I spent some time after after leaving here. Spent some time, a couple of years uh, uh, as a chaplain in Houston, and then out of that, um, uh, out of that, the, the Southern Baptist uh, chaplains, the head of the Southern Baptist chaplain, showed up in Houston and came to our house, and he asked, uh, told Becky and I that we had an opportunity to go active duty. And uh, so, and and so she the the. the the head of the chaplaincy turned to Becky, and you'll love this, because we packed up our stuff out of Stockton, and we moved directly to Houston. And the, the guy asked Becky, well now, if Norris does this, will you be willing to find, follow him anywhere in the world? Becky didn't miss a beat. She said, I followed him to Houston, didn't I? <laughs> And as far as she could tell, that was the wor- that was the far end of the world to drive to Houston, and so. But anyway, uh, so I spent seven years in the Air Force, and then right after that, I returned to hospital ministry, and I came up here to Sutter. And I, at Sutter, I was the chaplain for women and childrens, and uh, so everything everything from the neonatal unit to the um, to the p- uh, pediatric ICU to women who were laying on their backs for weeks at a time. You never met a more chatty woman than woman who's laid on her weeks at a time in the perinatal unit waiting to have a baby. They would just practically grab my hand and say, sit for a while. <laughs> so, entertain me, do something. 
But anyway, I was the chaplain up there, so you never knew what was going to what was cooking. And my office was um, was uh, Roger. It was about as big as this office back here. Only I had to share it with three other chaplains. And so. Um, Anyway, gone was my big library, everything I had as a pastor. But uh, so uh, on the other side of that wall was our chapel, our small chapel, which again wasn't much bigger even than that office back there. But every once in a while through the wall I could hear people praying, I could hear people talking, I could hear people crying. And so one day I heard these pulsating sobs from from the chapel next door. And I pushed my chair away from my desk and I wondered what I would find this time. Would it be a mother crying for her child? Would it be someone bargaining to God that to save an alcoholic partner? Or would it be a community member praying for an errant child? I had seen all of those things in that chapel, but I had not seen what I was coming into the chapel this day for. I opened the door to see a petite woman nearly drowning in her tears. I couldn't make out all the words, but it was clear to me that she was saying something, that she was sorry for something, that she was asking forgiveness for something. What was she sorry for? Something, something about her daughter, I heard. What, what, was, was she sick? Was she in an accident? Was, was this a newly diagnosed terminal disease? Wait, 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 I thought. There was something she said. Was this... Was this the woman a nurse had earlier described in whispered tones? A nurse I had heard talk about a woman that had brought her child into our hospital after beating her into a coma with a coat hanger. It was. She was crying. She was begging God's forgiveness. In the midst of her tears, Brother Peterson will have to uh, uh, appreciate this. In the midst of, of her tears, I had to deliver what I call the hospital's version to the Miranda rights. <laughs> it means I am an employee of that hospital and I can be called to testify and be careful what you say. <laughs> but she was crying. She was asking God for forgiveness. And I stayed with her to pray for a few minutes until the door opened, revealing two detectives anxious to talk to her. Being as there were no exits on the seventh floor and that these men had guns coming into my chapel, I asked them to wait outside. <laughs> I thought it was just sort of respectful until I brought her outside and that part didn't so much surprise me. But it's what happened over the next few days that surprised me. You see, her church showed up. People from her church, from her Bible study group. It seemed to me that this woman had committed an unpardonable sin. I mean, the scripture says if you offend one of these, put a, put a stone around their neck and drop them into the sea. I was ready to drown this woman myself. But Jesus had a different level of forgiveness that we can't imagine. And this church showed up. They showed up not to say what she did was anything close to acceptable but to show up and to deliver an uncaring promise of forgiveness, an unconditional love. 
There they stood. Oh, they were all as shocked as you can imagine. Oh, none of them, I'm sure, had any bit of sympathy for what she did. But somehow they gathered in their own hearts this idea that if forgiveness can be extended to me, it's powerful and it can be extended to all. It's occurred to me that people are so imperfect in their love. We're, we're capable of loving an errant spouse and yet incapable of loving their children. We can love one parent and not the other. We can love homeless. We can love, we can love animals, but not the homeless. We possess this incredible ability to compartmentalize our love and deliver it into the most inhospitable environments, and we can love the most unlovable things. We're so imperfect in our love and our forgiveness. But God, this church, this church was there to show the power of forgiveness. I spent several weeks at that girl's bedside watching the father wipe the drool from her vacant eyes. And I have to tell you, I didn't ever really find a lot of love for that woman. And I don't expect you to find a lot of love for her either. But if this church could show up and show a loving and caring presence to that woman, they must have seen something in her worth saving that only God could show them. And the whole thing begged the question, if that church could still show love toward that woman, how much more capable is God of showing His love toward us? If they could struggle and I mean struggle through love and restoration and forgiveness, how much more can God do for us? Well, it's been almost ten years now since I saw that woman, only from newspaper accounts. I know the child originally, eventually died about four years after that. She resides in prison, and my hope is that, only, that the woman will only live with two memories. One of, our, one of her child, and one of God's restorative forgiveness. A third reason I give why should we forgive is because a lack of forgiveness keeps me in the past. A lack of forgiveness keeps me in the past. The Lord says, forget the former things I do. Do not dwell upon the past. See, I am doing a new thing. Now it springs up, and now do you not perceive it? Do you know what I call this dwelling in the past? I call it having a seance with your hurts. Oh, we don't believe in seances here. <laughs> I know that. But yet, how many times have you had a seance with your past? And this is how it works. At least this is how it worked one day in my house. My wife came into our walk-in closet and she said, Who are you talking to in here? Uh, nobody. I heard voices in here. Who are you talking to? Nobody. Who were you talking to? Do you know who I was talking to? I had a chaplain that I worked with in the Air Force who, who said some things that resulted in some very difficult days for me. In fact, I was actually investigated by the Office of Special Investigation for the way I handle chapel finances. 
because of the things that he had said. It turned out okay, but how would you like the best thing to be said about you? Concluded in the OSI report was, we find no evidence of wrongdoing. (laughs) Because we can't find the evidence that he did it. (laughs) But it hurt. And for years, I talked to that man. I talked to that man in my closet. I talked to that man on my drives in the car. I talked to him. And you know who I'm talking about. You don't know him, but you know someone like him. And I suspect even in the last week, you've had some conversations with that guy, that lady, that person. They're not around to hear it, but you say it so well in your head because you've rehearsed it so long. Well, I had evidence that I had done the right things. I had written, if you've been in the military, you know, I wrote dozens of reports after that about what, explaining absolutely everything, and here you can talk to this person, and they went, and it went on ad nauseum. But it only ended this way. My wife says, why don't you call the pastor? Well, I was the chaplain. How do you, what do you call the pastor? Well, some of you may remember the pastor in my life was Becky's father. And he is still, he just uh, retired from his church in, uh, in, uh, in Fair Oaks, California, after 50 years. But he challenged me to do some things. We called him over to the house, and he suggested some practical ways to deal with wrongdoings. You have to deal with it immediately. Ephesians 4.26, don't let the sun go down on, on, on you while you're angry. Well, too late for that. <laughs> it had been years since the guy had, it had been about seven years or so since the guy had done this. And so it was too late for that. Okay, well, determined to be first, he said. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as Christ forgave you. Determined to be first. Well, for years, I had, I had imagined me walking, going to find him again and shaking my finger and I didn't do everything, I blah, blah, I, I was right and I didn't, and I had all this rehearsed for years. And so one day, on one of my journeys to Florida where I was speaking in the area, I found him. He was pastoring a Lutheran church outside of Tampa. And I called him up and I walked into his office and I sat down and you know the first thing he said to me how you doing how's your life how's your wife suddenly we were having this conversation I had found out about the hurts in his life and he I, he found out about the hurts and successes in my life and we shared until finally I said what I always wanted to say but it wouldn't come out All I said was, I think we left each other with some hurts. Not that big speech I'd rehearsed in the closet. I think we were left with some hurts. And then you know what he said? He said, whatever I did, I'm sorry. Oh, man. (laughs) And you know what I said? I said, and whatever I did, I'm sorry. Did I just say that? Did I just tell him that I was sorry? (laughs) How did that work? How did that come out? And do you know, that was three years ago, and I have never thought about him negatively again. 
I mean from the instant. I mean, I mean, it, it was such a shock about two weeks, three weeks later, I said to my wife, she looks up, what's wrong, what's wrong? I, I haven't thought about what this guy did in three weeks. In three months. Determined to be first. Even if you're the one that's right. Don't plan revenge. Don't repay evil for evil. Be careful to do what's right in the eyes of everybody. I'm going to rush ahead because I have one more story to tell you. The, third, the fourth thing is, is be good to them. But I tell you who... I tell you who hear me, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who mistreat you. Five years ago, I answered a call. I was serving in the National Guard. I answered a call to become a hospital chaplain in the busiest hospital in the world, in Iraq. 70 miles north of um, Baghdad, a place called Balad. It didn't make the news much, and that was very intentional by the military. <laughs> but it was the largest. We saw 1,000 patients uh, in the ER every month. Made it the busiest trauma center in the world. And I was the senior chaplain there, and I volunteered to go there only after... Next slide... Only after I got my wife's permission. <laughs> this is the day after Christmas, 1989. We repeated that tearful scene at the airport the next day because the plane didn't go off that morning from Sacramento. But the next slide shows, this is the view from the air in Balad, Iraq. And there were 25,000 people there in that, that rear echelon place. And about half of them were contractors and the rest of them were military. So I flew into that place, and just five quick slides to show you. We called it beautiful, br next, brown, balad. And so that was our kind of little bit of, this little bit of background. Next slide. And this is, this is the chapel staff, and there were 25 of us there. But I was the only one in the hospital. I was the only one serving in the hospital. That's me in the right, still the gray hair. I didn't dye it yet. So... Uh, Anyway, so, um, and I served 12 hours a day uh, for six days a week in this hospital. Now, I showed you that because it's, the story I'm going to tell you is important for you to know what that vehicle is. Behind you, behind them is called an MRAP, a, a uh, now I keep forgetting what that's even called, but the important thing you have to know, it had a V-shaped hull on the bottom to deflect. It's a mine res MR, mine-resistant... Oh, man, I've got to remember that. <laughs> it's a mine-resistant uh, truck, right? So uh, with this bottom that, that blew the explosives away from the vehicle. So on Easter morning, we were having a sunrise service, and you never started a worship service uh, unless you've gotten to start it like we did when uh, the safety officer stood up to, instead of a, a call to order or a call to prayer, he stood up to say, now, if we're bombed during this worship service... <laughs> You need to go over here to the shelters, and you need to go over here to the shelters. So we started that, and in the middle of the in the middle of the of the worship service, as as we are are, are worshiping, uh, pagers went off all around this this auditor or this uh, this uh, uh, not auditorium, an outside arena, on the outside arena. 
And we rushed, all the people that worked in the hospital, including myself, rushed to the hospital. The next slide. And that's the hospital. So uh, it, it was, as you can see, maybe five, six acres. I'm not sure. But that was our clinic. That's the, that was in the middle of the base. And we were called, we were called uh, where Black Hawk helicopters were landing on the back side of this hospital. And uh, the uh, next slide. So here, uh, I'm standing behind the picture here, and we are waiting for, to see what's going on with this patient. And um, all she's saying at that point, the first patient had this shrapnel in her right eye and, and a broken left hand, but she seemed okay. But we could hear, I could hear from, from my vantage point in that slide, she blurts out, I, I could have saved him, I could have saved him. And we're saying, who? Who? She says, our team leader. And in the next few moments, this 98-pound soldier recalled riding as a medic in this vehicle that you saw. And that's her in the middle. She, she was uh, riding in this, the vehicle that we saw, and this explosively formed projectile managed to penetrate the armored vehicle. And she's half-blinded. She's the medic that just happened to be doing a ride-along that day when her team leader lost a leg. And she... She crawls through that twisted metal and she reaches into her, this soldier's hip and she pinches off the femoral artery. And the trauma doctor in that picture earlier said, well, you did the right thing. That's what we would have done. And, and she, said, she said, well, he kept, my squad leader kept talking about his wife and his un, unborn child. And she said, I couldn't, I couldn't hold, I couldn't hold the femoral artery. Because if you hold it, you got to keep holding it. There's no fixing it. You're only delaying death. You, you, because when you let it go, it retracts and you, it, you, it can't be fixed. And so she listened to him die. And we told her, just relax, just relax. The anesthesia was prepping her for surgery. Soon she was sedated, and I made my way over to the other soldier. On your left, Sergeant Crawford. And as quickly, I asked him if I could help him in any way. He said, I want you to pray, chaplain. Pray. I could do that. I had already prayed for a lot of soldiers by that point. It was my tour was almost over. But I like to ask hospital chap patients when they ask for prayer. I ask to. Well, I like to say what. What would you like me to pray for? Because I think it's important that you know what they're going to pray for. He said, "I want you to pray that the insurgents will." better understand what we're trying to do to make their country better. I thought, well, I can do that. I said, uh, giving the naivete of his battlefield spirituality this kind of assenting nod. I said, the Bible does, after all, uh, the Bible does say to pray for your enemies. And just as I was about to pray, he said, yes, but it says more than that, doesn't it? More than that? 
He said, I want you to pray that God will forgive the insurgents that killed my friend. My eyebrows furrowed, my neck stiffened. I needed some more guidance to that. I didn't teach that one in seminary. I said, what would that prayer sound like? Because I think it's so important that people pronounce their prayers and what they're asking. What would that prayer sound like? He said, you know. You know that prayer that Jesus said on the cross? He coaxed me like I was forgotten a password or something. You know that prayer? Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Of course I knew the prayer. It's the prayer Jesus prayed too as he bled out. The prayer wasn't for himself. It was for the mob who had unjustly crucified him. Jesus had seen his killers not as evil people, but as ignorant ones, ignorant of their capacity, ignorant of their complicity in their own downfall. In fact, that same prayer that Sergeant Crawford asked me to pray echoes down the eons for you, for me, for the wounded squad leader, for the insurgents. And I couldn't help but think, God, here I am. I'm doing what you said. Love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who mistreat you. But God, it's hard. It's so hard. Jesus summed it up all in the Sermon on the Mount. He said, love your, love your friend. Or you're, you're familiar with that old written law, love your friend. And its unwritten companion, hate your enemy. Again, from the message translation, I'm challenging that, Jesus flatly stated. I'm telling you to love your enemies because if all you do is love the lovable, what do you expect? Some kind of bonus? Anybody can do that. If you simply say hello to those who greet you, don't, do you expect some kind of medal? Any run-of-the-mill sinner does that. I think that's a great prayer, Sergeant Crawford. I bowed my head and I prayed. And somewhere between my amen and my opening my eyes, I saw this flash in my head, in my imagination, a kind of bloodied collage. I saw the insurgents planting the bomb. I imagined the explosion, the medics struggling to treat the squad, the, 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 the team leader bleeding out, and the private that was praying for them all. And at that moment, I understood... Our world will remain this unending circle of revenge until we learn, as we did from this simple, wise Sergeant Crawford, to continually repeat the prayer. And as we pray it with all our hearts and all our souls, it will be answered, if not in this world and in the next, when we hear the words of Jesus, Well done, thy good and faithful servant. When I thought of that level of forgiveness... That's when I came home from Iraq and found that chaplain that offended me. Because if he can do it, we can do it. And you know what is interesting to me? 
I wasn't the only chaplain he asked for that. The night shift chaplain, he asked the same thing. Oh, by the way, he was Pentecostal, so he asked, was there a Pentecostal chaplain on base? Yes, he, there was, and yes, could he come? Oh, and by the way, was there a priest? Yes, but you're not, but can he come too? And they all came. About five chaplains over the next three days came to his bedside, and he only had one prayer request. Will you all pray that God would forgive the people that did this to my friend? Should cut the slides there. Or, no, don't, sorry, no. Uh, so, yeah, right there. So the last thing that my pastor, Will, said, he said, include your community, your church, your small group. In other words, make yourself accountable to forgive. And so my father-in-law brought us into this circle in our living room with my mother-in-law and another chaplain friend of mine. And he wrote this responsive reading that I want to share with you because I've written this and it's appeared in several newspapers around the country and it's probably my most requested because I get these emails that say, will you send me a copy of this and that? And it probably is really my most requested thing. And I didn't write it, which makes it a very humble experience. <laughs> so my father-in-law wrote it. So I'm going to ask, is our own invitation, if you will, or our own closing part, if you all would stand with me. And I would ask that we read this together. But first, I want you to think. I want you to recall. Who is that person in your life that wronged you in such a way that you are still holding on to it? That it still hurts? That you still talk to him in your closet, in your car, in your, in your life? And I want you to think of that person. And I'll be the leader and you respond. The deeper the hurt, the longer the journey, whether in minutes, hours, or days, to that healing destination brought about by forgiveness and release. I promise to move in that direction. I may not move as fast as you think I should, but today or daily, I will release and surrender either all or some part of this These hurts have many names, such as bushwhacked, waylaid, backstabbed, slandered, deceived, and none hurt like the one received from a perceived friend. Ceasing to dwell on this matter is not a matter of weakness, for it will free your time and your mind. Therefore, if you are willing to stop looking back and instead face a forward direction, then our mighty God will be better able to bless and direct a forward-moving life. Because I know you are God, I hereby do God.
Since then, I've shared this litany with many fellow strugglers. No one has ever come back and said, hey, after I prayed that prayer or after I read those words, everything was okay. Most have found it very useful, though, as a strong step forward toward deliberately ceasing to call on those dead issues. As for myself, I continue to remember the litany as a daily touchstone, reminding me what my Al-Anon friend is always telling me. Do you want to be right? Or do you want to be righteous? I want to be righteous before God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, in this moment, in this hour, we ask that if there are those here who are without you or those here who who need to make a commitment toward forgiveness, that they reach out. Even if those two people are here in the same building, that they reach out to each other and to say, with God's power, we can forgive. We ask this blessing now in Jesus' name. Amen.